It's a spring afternoon, and I'm sitting in a conference room at the University of Pittsburgh Office of Child Development, asking my colleagues to share with me their thoughts and feelings about racial bias. You know, your typical workday. My coworkers are taking a test that will show them whether or not they prefer white or black faces and how strong that preference is. Four people have agreed to be guinea pigs, three white, one African-American, and they haven't taken the test before. With each person, there are varying degrees of uncomfortability. Intersectional dynamics, of course, are at play. I'm a white male, my colleagues are not. And then there's the weird nature of sitting silently while your office neighbor clicks through an online test. But even more so than that is the level of discomfort that arises in thinking about what this test may reveal. Will it show that I only like white people? Will it show that I'm biased toward black people? Will it show that I'm a completely neutral, colorblind observer of the world? Spoiler, that last one is almost definitely a no. And the underlying question lingering in the room seems to be this. What does it mean to have racial bias? And how does it affect the lives of the children and families we serve? Race doesn't limit you from anything. I feel like they learn about race from, I teach them what you know about who you are with somebody else that looks like you. And love who you are. To love themselves. This is In My Skin, a podcast about race and childhood. I'm Adam Flango. In this special four-episode series, we're going to look into bias, what it is, how it manifests itself in the lives of children, and what we can do to confront it. Now, there are generally two kinds of bias, explicit and implicit. Explicit bias manifests itself in conscious ways. If you are consciously biased against a certain race, you may purposely discriminate against that race. Implicit bias is more complicated because it lies hidden in plain sight. As Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt describes in her book, Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do, implicit bias is a kind of distorting lens that's a product of both the architecture of our brain and the disparities in our society. The delineation between the two can sometimes be blurry, this podcast is going to focus on implicit bias. The implications of implicit bias are far-reaching, and you may have heard about how it affects policing. Introduce the Fair and Impartial Policing Training, a relatively new program aimed at teaching officers about so-called implicit bias. Job promotions, real estate, and practically every component of American life. It's weaved into our culture and reflects the sordid history of racial inequality and discrimination in the United States. Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum refers to racism as a type of smog, constantly being breathed in whether we realize it or not. And if racism is smog, think of implicit bias as the poor driving that results from the adverse conditions. So just exactly how biased are we? That after the break. In My Skin is a production of the PRIDE program, which stands for Positive Racial Identity Development in Early Education. 
Pride is part of the University of Pittsburgh Office of Child Development. Thank you to the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and Hillman Family Foundations for making this episode possible. It'd be nice to say, oh, of course not. I don't have bias. But the tricky part about implicit bias is that it's difficult to self-assess accurately. For an accurate assessment, you'll have to take a test like the one my colleagues took. It's called the Race Implicit Association Test, one of a series of implicit association tests developed by Project Implicit, a nonprofit started in 1998 that aims to educate the public about hidden biases and to provide a virtual laboratory for collecting data on the internet. So what the implicit association test is and, and what it does um, is that it's a measure of people's associations. That's Dr. Kate Ratliff, an associate professor at the University of Florida and executive director of Prodiplicit. Um, in the case of our, our attitude versions of the IAT, like the race IAT or the disability IAT, um, what we believe is that the IAT measures the extent to which people associate, for example, white faces or white people with good and black people or black faces with bad um, more strongly than the reverse. Um, so really what it is, it's, it's a measure of the associations that people have in their minds, um, which we sort of label as implicit bias or an implicit preference or an implicit attitude, depending on who, who you talk to. As we began the test, I sat quietly and recorded as my Office of Child Development colleagues started the test which begins with a series of more than 20 blunt questions that require an honest self-assessment. Things like, do you think white students and black students should go to the same schools or separate schools? How in favor would you be of living in a neighborhood where half of your neighbors were black people? Or how warm or cold do you feel towards black people and how warm do you feel towards white people? Not exactly the best conversation starters. So I can say just having you in the room and reading this question makes me a little nervous. <laughs> we don't know each other as well. Um, and it feels like it takes explanation to, to explain this. I feel like, I, how do I feel like I don't know these? I'm like, I don't know the answers. I know there's no right or wrong, but I don't, I don't even like a gut instinct. The actual test is far more instinctual and reactionary. It requires you to match faces and words into certain categories. One section might be pictures of faces, and you click E if it's a white face, I if it's a black face. The next section may feature positive words like spectacular and delight, and then negative words like awful and tragic, and you have to use E and I to place those words. Eventually, positive and negative words are interspersed with black and white faces. The questions aren't designed to throw you off balance, but the first time you see it, it can have that effect. It can feel like the test is trying to trick you, or that there is a secret motive behind why a question is worded a certain way. And if the people taking the test are a bunch of university researchers, they tend to try to figure out those design tricks. Well, I was, I was curious when they said at the end that they gave it in random order because I thought, like, this is like setting us up to fail with giving the black people in bad as the first option mm. and pairing those two together. So I wonder how it would have been if I'd done it the other way around. But it felt like they had, it, it felt like the test was almost biased because that's the way it gave it to me. Mm. 
I mean, you saw even at the beginning, I try to like read into everything that's being done and said and like to see more intention behind it. And so um, it felt kind of frustrating to have them switch the labels Mm -hmm. and say, this is good and this is bad. Like that was, you know, immediately felt a little like, no, I don't want to do that. But I knew it was the test and I knew that's what I needed to do to be able to go through the test. Questioning the methods of the test is something Dr. Ratliff has heard plenty in her 17 years working with Project Implicit. Um, yeah, so that's that's a very common question. It's a common concern um, about the, the order of the test. And I think it makes a lot of sense that people have that response because when they're doing the test, it feels different in in different parts of the test. Um, And so a lot of people interpret the fact that they're having difficulty, say, pairing black faces with good and white faces with bad as something about the test rather than something about themselves. Um, So I think it's it's very sensible that people have that response because it matches their feeling. Um, But we have a lot of data now showing that the order of the test matters very little. Um, it, it does matter some, but but not very much, and certainly not as much as people think that it does. Um, so you know, the data sort of tell us that that's not that shouldn't be much of a of a concern. That it really isn't a, a trick. And the results from the data, well, they are pretty clear. And we know that somewhere around seventy percent of white participants who have taken the race version of the IAT at the site. Um, show at least some degree of pro-white implicit bias. Um, Mazarin Benaji, who is faculty at Harvard and one of the founders of the organization, um, I, I like the way that she talks about the, the data that we generate. She talks about it as sort of a, a thumbprint of our culture, um, which I, I really like. And I think that that's one of the real benefits that we get from collecting these kind of data on such a large scale um, is because it, it tells us something about the, the associations that, that we have in our minds um, among people who, who share the, the same culture. Now, the Implicit Association Test, or IAT, isn't perfect. The results of an individual test don't paint exactly as clear of a picture as you'd hope. It's designed to work in the aggregate, which means it relies on more than just one test for complete accuracy. But that doesn't mean the results of one test don't say something, particularly in the way people take them in. So so mine says that I suggest I have a slight automatic preference for white people over black people. Not surprising. (laughs) Okay. I guess I wasn't surprised by my results. I I would want them to be different, which is part of why I did this. I mean, I'm not surprised, you know, that I have a European um, preference over African-Americans is our society. Um, that's all I can say is like saying, I, you know, I prefer a white car over a black car. Mm-hmm. If I've seen a hundred white cars all the time, yeah. Mm-hmm. If I grew up in Africa, I might question it maybe a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't feel I don't feel any kind of way about it. Because mm-hmm. um, I think it is a struggle for African Americans to really um, 
even see the best in ourselves. Yeah. Now, this is probably the time when I should tell you that these reactions aren't exactly typical. Pitt's Office of Child Development, where we all work, has undergone extensive training on race and social justice over the past two years. But when people are surprised by their results, Ratliff sees two general types of reactions. So there's one group of people who feel kind of guilt, right? They have this feeling like, oh my gosh, I just learned something about myself that I didn't know and I feel really awful about this. What can I do to fix it? Um, there's another camp of people who have this sort of response of, I learned something bad about myself, but it can't possibly be true. Um, so there must be something wrong with the test or you're trying to trick me or there's some major flaw that you haven't thought of in the last 20 years um, and have this sort of defensive, more hostile type response. Maybe this shouldn't come as a surprise that some people find it difficult to admit that they might prefer a white face over a black face, regardless of the race of that person. But what's interesting about the test is that when you substitute racial preference for something innocuous, that hostility disappears. There's actually some data showing that if you give people um, kind of a, a mundane sort of test, like a flowers insects version of the test, and ask them, what do you think this test measures? They'll say, oh, I think it measures how much I like flowers and insects. Right. So if you if you frame it as something, you know, innocuous like that, people are very willing to say like, oh, yeah, this probably measures my associations. Um, but then when you substitute that with things like race or gender or weight or ability, um, all of a sudden it doesn't it that that argument doesn't you know feel as good anymore. It can be hard to confront your bias, even if it's right in front of you. But it's a necessary task because the biases we have as adults can have dramatic effects on children. Over the next three episodes, we are going to talk about just a few of those dramatic effects. We are going to look at AAVE, African American Vernacular English, also known as African American English, and talk with a teacher about how teaching AAVE can make an impact on a child's life. We'll also learn about how black children are punished at drastically higher rates than their peers, and why bias makes confronting that fact so difficult. And lastly, we're going to talk about combating bias. How do you solve such a complex problem that's ingrained in our society? That's coming up on the next three episodes of In My Skin. In My Skin is a production of the University of Pittsburgh Pride program. You can find out more about the Pride at racepride.pit.edu. This episode was written and produced by me, Adam Flango, with help from Pride Director Aisha White and Pride, Pride Director of Engagement of University Medina of Pittsburgh's Jackson. Office of Child Development in the School of Education. You can find out more about the Office of Child Development at ocd.pit.edu.